Welcome to the Balance of Power Roundtable. Matt Robeson joined, as always, by my panel of former Democratic U.S. Congressman Paul Hope, our conservative political analyst, consultant, and commentator, Alicia Preston. We are starting off on the topic that's dominated our minds for the last four days. Of course, the war in Israel, the attack by Hamas, the atrocity, the brutality that's there. And we were all talking uh, before we got on the air here about what do we want to talk about here? How, how do we want to address this? And it's very hard. And I, I think that for us, we want to start to assess as we're taking in, as we've all been taking in over the last four days, the reality of what's happened there. We're starting to also think about what's going to happen in the next four days, what's going to happen in the next few weeks. We don't have any answers on those questions, but we're beginning to get some indications. Some of the dynamics are beginning to emerge. And so that's what we want to talk about here. If you want more of a deep dive into the situation live, what happened during the attack, and some really deep analysis on this topic, I urge you to go back one episode in the podcast feed to our interview with Dan Perry, the former lead Mideast reporter for the Associated Press based in Tel Aviv. He is a deep and deeply sourced expert on this topic, and we got into every aspect of it in a, a very thorough and thoughtful conversation, and I just commend that to all of our viewers and listeners. For today, I want to talk about, let's start off on where we might be going with this. I think the, the first question is for us in the U.S. is what is the U.S.'s support posture going to look like? And Alicia, you wanted to raise the fact that we're beginning to see after an initial outpouring of almost universal support for Israel, we are seeing some, some nuances and, and some tensions emerge here. What are you seeing? I think we're seeing, and it's predominantly among Democrats were starting to see this initial backlash against Israel for their need to re to restrain themselves. The sea is one of sent out a message that there needs to be a ceasefire, and then dumbfoundingly, the Secretary of State Antony Blinken <clears throat> tweeted out, which he has now deleted, the same thing. Not only a call for a ceasefire, but that he had chatted with Turkey, and Turkey wants a ceasefire, and he encourages them to push for one. And this is just hours after Israel had started its counteroffensive, and. Number one, I don't give a flying F what Turkey says about Hamas. They don't even recognize them as a terrorist organization. They hosted them for a summit in July. Why we'd be siding with Turkey in this situation over anyone is, boggles my mind. But the other thing is Israel has a right for a counteroffensive. They have a right to defend themselves and send a message that you can't do this again. And I don't want civilians in Gaza to die because of this, but blame their own government, which is Hamas. Israel gave a warning as best as they could to people in Gaza and gave them hours to get out. And then they're going to go in and bomb what they believe are Hamas-targeted sites. And they've done that over 150 times. And are civilians going to die? Yes, and that's horrible. But you can't let what Hamas did just go unchecked. What they did is we, I know you guys spoke about it. I just haven't had a chance. It's beyond an act of war. It's raping and pillaging and dragging naked women through the streets with blood coming out of them after being assaulted in the way they were. It's slaughter. And there has to be a counter to that. And it's not, okay, let's all just get along. Because what's the future there? Israel will cease to exist. I, I do think that 
the overwhelming, and I'm not trying to inject too much domestic politics into this, but it's relevant. We should talk about it. I, I do think that the overwhelming sentiment from the White House, President Biden is a long time, very staunch ally of Israel. And they lit up the White House and the Israeli flag um, projected on the White House front. He has been unflinching in his support, even for a figure that we've all derided on this show, like Benjamin Netanyahu. Th that has been put aside. I tend to think that a tweet like the now deleted tweet from Anthony Blinken, we all know how these things go. There was probably a comms staffer who wrote that. And then someone higher up in the chain or maybe at the White House was like, no, do not, please delete this. Do not use this language. There was a backlash, but I don't think that was needed. I think that someone saw, but I think you're right that it's revealing. There are tensions and they're within the Democratic Party and within the Republican Party here, and they're going in, in different directions. Let's talk about the Democratic Party side first. Paul, you have a really fascinating backstory in this regard. When you came to Congress, was right about the time that the pro-Israel lobby in the US was dividing a little bit. For a long time, there was a unified front behind APAC, the American Israel Political Action Committee. It's not like the name implies. They, they're not a PAC, like we think of PACs that give money. They are actually an advocacy organization. And there was a sense in the wake of the events in the early 2000s in Israel that APAC and that the political leadership of the United States had become too dogmatically tied to, hey, what the Israeli government does and says is right. We, our role is just to unequivocally support them. And there, there emerged a new movement saying, hey, we can be friends who all, and allies who also take a little bit more of a, a nuanced position on the specific actions of the government. We don't have to just swallow everything, no matter how off the wall it is. Paul Hotz, as a Jewish member of Congress and as the president of the freshman class of 2006, you were their prime get, this new group. They wanted you, I know because they called me as your chief of staff, they wanted you to be the face of their organization more than any other single member of Congress. They told me that. And you were, so you were smack dab in the middle of this emerging tension that we've now seen grow a great deal and go in much more anti-Israel directions within the Democratic Party over the last 15 years. But tell us a little bit about this and, and how you've seen sentiment within the Democratic Party vis-a-vis -vis Israel evolve. It was pretty fascinating. I was the first Jewish congressman from New Hampshire. Warren Rudman, also Jewish, had been a U.S. senator. So I was the first Jewish congressman from New Hampshire. And I certainly felt the pressure and the swirling countercurrents between APAC and the newly founded J Street. APAC played a major part in my election. I got a huge amount of support. Although they weren't a PAC in the ordinary sense, I was a prime beneficiary of their support in many ways, including financially. One of the, I was struck, and I'll never forget going to a, a meeting, an APAC conference or meeting or something, and I was cornered by two people who I later learned were senior members of the APAC board and a part of the directorship of APAC. And, and they cornered me, and the question they asked me was, 
are you prepared to drop nukes on Iran? That was their question. Are you prepared to drop nukes on Iran? And my background was as a peace activist. I had worked with an organization called Beyond War about how to resolve conflicts, even terrible conflicts, without the use of war. Because, look, war is obsolete. It kills people and rarely solves problems. They seem to always come back, no matter what the violence brings. At least that, and so that was my background. And and, my, uh, and I said, I don't think nuclear war is going to solve anything. And went on to, to participate. APAC would have these huge banquets, 5,000 people in Washington, D.C., gathered for the speeches and the, and the and a dinner. And it was a big deal. When J Street formed and, and approached me, I was really pulled apart. I appreciated that J Street's alternative was a somewhat, I don't know whether you'd call it softer, whether you'd call it more liberal, whether you'd call it less harsh support for Israel, but an approach that said, we're not going to unfailingly support the government of Israel, no matter what they do. There are other ways to achieve security and stability for Israel, and we want to explore them. I didn't end up joining J Street. I did not end up, there were other events that kind of took took our attention, including the financial collapse and the Obama campaign and healthcare and other things. And I would say that these days, I'm, I would, these days, I would adhere to the J Street approach, not the APAC approach, because what one of the things that's happened in APAC is they've gotten harder and moved further and further to the right. So I see them as a Netanyahu affiliate at this point. And I think that with all the horror that we've seen over the past few days, the true way forward is not going to be violence. And that's what we're seeing, I think, domestically now is the countercurrent that after this there's nothing you can say except universal condemnation and horror at what Hamas did. There's there there are no words. And as Israel does what Israel is going to do, we're going to see more and more of these cross currents about whether or not responding in kind or responding over kind or how strongly Israel responds. We're going to see more and more cross currents about people saying, okay, is this going to be the way forward. Yes, Israel has a right to self-defense, of course, but these cross-currents in in the country and in the world are real. And I think it may be especially true on the Democratic side that liberals and progressives will take that approach. And one of the striking things, just the last thing I'll say, is that when the president issued his statement, when the White House issued its statement about what had happened, the president recognized that the Palestinian people are also victims of Hamas. And they are, we, I've seen news reports of Palestinians just horrified by what Hamas did. Any civilized person with a conscience has to be horrified by this. But the Palestinian people are in the grip of this terrorist organization that doesn't care about them. It doesn't care about Israelis, and it doesn't care about the Palestinian people. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. 
Hey, it's Matt. You may have heard my recent guest, Matt McNeil, an outstanding progressive radio host out of Minnesota. And you might be thinking, I wish there were a show like that where I live. Well, you can listen to The Matt McNeil Show streamed live every weekday from 3 to 5 p.m. on AM 950 KTNF, Minneapolis, St. Paul. Or you can get the podcast of The Matt McNeil Show wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, I want to underscore that point for a second. Well, there's a lot in what you said. First, this is a point Tom Friedman was making in the New York Times two days ago that Qatar alone has given over a billion dollars of financial support in the last 10 years to Hamas in Gaza. Have they used it to build infrastructure, healthcare, sanitation, schools, provide food, provide necessaries for the people there? Not one dime. It's all gone to missiles and tunnels so that they could attack. Hamas does not care about the 2 million Palestinian people living in Gaza. And so they are very much the victims here as well. I think that it is very hard for American Jews like you, Paul, like me, to find a comfortable spot. And this has been increasingly hard in recent years. We don't want to make common cause with people who we strongly suspect have an anti-Semitic agenda lurking, maybe not that far in the background behind them. We are against the ban, divest, and sanction movement that has overtaken mostly the left, somewhere, sometimes on college campuses, as, again, something that is rooted in anti-Semitism. And the conflation, the equaling the both sidesism of the Israelis do this and the Palestinians do this, and it's a tragedy on both sides. There is no parallel. What Israel is going to do, I, I don't know what they're going to do. In the past, and they've already in recent days, when they are going to bomb in retaliation for their 9-11, they send text messages to every number in Gaza that they have, warning people to get out. They try they try to target Hamas sites, even though Hamas is using hostages as human shields and their own citizens, their own people as human shields. Israel makes efforts at restraint. Do they do things that are wrong, that we profoundly disagree with, that in the words of Dan Perry, our guest yesterday, are under the dictionary definition of boneheaded? Absolutely. And Netanyahu making common cause with far right-wing extremists, bringing them into his cabinet. And as a concession to them, expanding West Bank settlements that even Israeli courts think are illegal and deploying seven times the force posture toward protecting those far-flung West Bank settlements than he did to the Gaza border, which is probably one of the underlying reasons that Israel was so ill-prepared and taken so off guard here. That is something that we can oppose, we can vocally oppose, as did millions of Israelis who took to the streets. And we had the leader of those protests, Galad Sher, on this show a few months ago. We very much make common cause with internal and external opponents to the actions of this government. And at the same time, I think we want to be very careful, very careful to not let those voices, that energy mix in with the clearly anti-Semitic movement around the world to attack Israel. And it's just very hard in this moment. I, Look, I want to cover but, one other, oh, go Paul. Can I just say, I just want to say one thing, which is that that there was, is going to be a lot of dissection of history and policy 
and failure and tragedy. What supersedes all that discussion, at least for me, is terrorism and the fact that you can object to Netanyahu, you can object to the right-wing fanatics, you can object to the policy, you can bemoan the failures, but there is no cotton terrorism. And that's what we're dealing with here with Hamas on a scale that is unprecedented, in part because of the support of actors, it appears now, like Iran, who apparently were deeply involved in what happened. Let's talk about that for a second. I alluded to the oft-used phrase in the last few days that this is Israel's 9-11. And one of the phrases that went around the U.S. in the days and years after 9-11 was, if we do such and such, then the terrorists win. It's worth thinking about what Hamas wants here and what constitutes them getting what they want. And in that light, I think it's, Alicia, I want to turn to you because one of the things that's emerged in the last day or two is prominent voices on, among Republicans saying, Every dollar that we were considering giving to Ukraine, we should give to Israel instead, which is obviously a false choice. And it's obviously a profound moral and logical mistake because everything that's happened in Israel has happened in slower fashion in Ukraine. All of the atrocities that we're talking about here have happened in Ukraine. And so you, Alicia, obviously as a conservative have been very outspoken in your support for American assistance to Ukraine and your support for Ukraine. And it, it, it feels to me like, what does Iran want here? What does Hamas want here? They want to disrupt the upcoming widely reported pact that was going to be struck among the US and Saudi Arabia and Israel. That, that closer tie there that would have further put Iran into a corner and, and left Hamas with less sources of support. And so if we achieve, if Republicans like Josh Hawley, who have caused, called for this diversion of attention and funds, get what they want, it seems to me that serves Iran's interests. It serves Vladimir Putin's interests. It does not serve U.S. interests. It does not serve Israel's interests. And it certainly does not serve Ukraine's interests. What do you think is going on here and is this something that you expect to take hold in the mainstream of the Republican Party? No, to the last question. I don't know what's going on here. The opposition to funding Ukraine is not my war, not my land. And yet the exact same people, the exact same people are coming out saying, now we need to throw all our eggs in the Israeli basket. Look, we can help both. We have the ability to help both. I'm going to misquote it, but I urge everyone to look up Elie Wiesel's 1986 Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech, where he discusses, he was the author of Night about the, his experience during the Holocaust. And in his acceptance speech, he discusses wherever someone is being oppressed, neutrality, suppressor, whenever there is tormenting, silence supports the tormentors. And I think we have to have, as America, that belief system. I think Israel is in a better position to protect itself than Ukraine, most certainly, but they're still going to need some assistance. And, and I think we can do both. And I think part of what's happening is we're seeing the OCs and some of the more far left members of the Democratic Party come out and support 
the Palestinian position, and therefore the Republicans are going against whatever that position they hold is, even though I don't believe that's a majority of the Democrats. I think that there there's just political backlash to just oppose whatever the other side opposes. Now, I'm no foreign diplomat. I don't know how all it works. All I know is Israel is our ally. I know that without support, they're surrounded by enemies and they need support from other parts of the world and the West in order to continue to exist. And I think we need to do whatever that is. And I think we need to continue helping Ukraine. We cannot allow the bad guys to win because we're afraid of any sacrifice it may mean for us because it could be us one day. I think we are inevitably, sadly, tragically going to be talking about this for weeks and, and months to come. And with that, I don't know, talking about internal domestic political machinations, it almost feels like a respite. It, it almost feels a refreshing, even though they're stupid and they're terrible and they're all about an authoritarian moron regaining power. Let's talk about that. Now, these things aren't, by the way, totally unrelated. The thing that's happening today as we record this is that there is a meeting among House Republicans to talk about the two candidates vying to succeed. Kevin McCarthy, a Speaker of the House, Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan. This feels like a real race to the bottom to me. Alicia, who's your boy here? Yeah, given ah! the options before me. I can't me. even keep a straight face. I can't even keep a straight face. This is a real poop sandwich for you. What's your meat? Uh, look, if, if I had a vote, I'd probably vote Steve Scalise, to be honest. I think he's the most civil among them. That... So it's fair to pick the Ku Klux Klan over, over the college pedophile. You know what? I wish for people who don't know, what Paul said is not off base. I consider it off base. Wait, I wait. actually like Steve okay. Scalise well enough. Okay, Steve Scalise, just so people know, did say, what did he say about he himself? He said, I'm David Duke without the baggage. Without the baggage. Why would you do that, Steve? Why would you compare yourself to the former Grand Wizard of the KKK? Why, why is that good? Go on, Alicia, please. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. We're looking for someone who can actually lead the conference and get something done. And while I said my preference would probably be Steve, Steve Scalise, my least preference would be Jim Jordan. I honestly think, look, I may not have been McCarthy's and I'm not McCarthy's biggest cheerleader, but he got the job done with the debt ceiling. He worked with the Democrats, which is what you're supposed to do when you have what is ultimately a divided house by only a few different numbers. He did that. He got it done and he paid the prices for doing it. And I think from that respect, he probably has the best shot if he really does jump back in, regaining his speakership. And I think the idea that anyone is letting a buffoon like Matt Gates call any shots in what's happening to our government is mind-boggling. And Nancy Mace, where'd she come from? As Now she's a kooky too. But here are the real-world ramifications. We can't rush an aid package to Israel right now. We can't do that because we don't have a speaker. And there's some constitutional question about this acting speaker tempore created after 9-11, can he officiate the body in order to do something? And most people are saying no. So we're at a standstill. We can't do anything. These are the real world ramifications of letting a buffoon like Matt Gates decide what color his fingernail should be. I don't know. The, the most mundane things he should not be allowed near, let alone being the decision maker in Congress. I think the first thing he shouldn't be allowed near is a hat store. I think the proprietors of such a, an establishment would run in terror. Oh no, he'll rip all our merchandise. I'm just saying he has an enormous forehead. That's all I'm trying to get across here. Oh. Head, proverbially and literally. 
Oh my gosh. And I say this as I have a massive head. Like I, like I, I was really worried because my wife has a rather elegant slender neck and I have a gigantic melon head. And I was worried that our kids would get both traits at the same time. And they'd look like the pep boys. They literally wouldn't be able to support their massive globular melons atop the slender neck. And they would like their heads would lean to the side. That didn't happen. Yeah, but I'm just saying I have some sympathy for Matt Gates in this regard, but I'm also going to make fun of him for it. I don't know, Paul, do you want to weigh in on this race to the bottom? I'm, I guess I'm with Alicia. Like probably I'd go with Steve Scalise because he's, he, he can make things work in Congress a little bit more. I don't know. Is there, do you have a preference here? Or yeah. It, for them to... Does anybody remember the, the Jim Carrey movie, Dumb and Dumber? Yeah. That, yeah. Well, I think it was a Jim Carrey movie. So, yeah. Yeah. Dumb and dumber. We're dealing with the nutwing party. Nothing is beyond them. Nothing is beneath them. The fact that they are riven by the crazies of the nutwing party and the regular go along complicit nutwings of the Republican Party should be evidence to the American people, surprisingly blind as they are to what is really happening to the Republicans. It's a crazy, it's crazy time. And it, I suppose it's no crazier than the fact that Trump is calling the shots. 91 indictments, twice impeached, and he's calling the shots. What can you say? What can you say? Welcome to America in the 21st century. The know-nothings have come back with the fury unknown. It's like the four horsemen, the four know-nothings of the apocalypse. Here it's, we are. The only I, thing did, about the Trump oh, factor, ahead, sorry, the <laughs> Trump factor is I think, so Trump's endorsement of Jim Jordan, I don't think does very much because I think those House members that would matter to were probably going to support Jim Jordan anyway. Like they're part of the same pool. So I'm not sure that is going to have any more influence in Jim Jordan's cultish following itself has. It's, it's an open question. It's something that's been debated in the press recently. There's there's some line of thinking that the rules have changed. Paul, you've been, oh, you never were really part of a leadership election. You ran for freshman class president. I've done at the staff level in Congress. Oh, yeah. I, no, I was part of a leadership election. John Murtha. There was the whole Murtha. Let's, let's talk for a second. The way these things work is there's a lot of freaking phone calls. There's a lot of, you have staffers calling each other and saying, who is your boss with? And everyone's trying to do a whip count. It's all a math game, right? But there's also, from a member level, you're getting buttonholed one-on-one -on -one and you're getting phone calls, right? People are trying to get you to commit and they want it from your mouth, from your face, and they're gonna bed check you like multiple times, right? Like you say, I'm with Hoyer, like in this election, and you're going to get five more people on his team coming. It's like nothing has changed. Like that's how it goes. So it's just running that I mean, kind of a campaign. I mean, look, when I got elected to Congress, I got off the plane. I got to the hotel and in the hotel lobby, Mike Capuano, who was a, I th a Mirtha advocate, as I recall, I had, Steny had called me and I had said, yeah. A member of Congress. Member of Congress, former mayor of Cambridge, Mass., fellow alum from Boston College Law School, guy who had helped me in my campaign because the Massachusetts guys had all helped me out. He buttonholed Oh, me. and celebrity. Uh, and uncle to, do people know this? He is the uncle to Captain America, Chris oh. Evans. Okay. So Chris anyway- I hadn't even dropped my bags walking into the hotel lobby before Capuano had buttonholed me to bend my ear about why I should be supporting Jack Murtha instead of Steny Hoyer. 
And he was relentless over days and days, relentless, calling me, telling me my career was over if I didn't, telling me that nobody in Massachusetts would support me anymore if I didn't go with Mirtha. It's on and on. I had a simple answer at the time. Mike, I gave my word to Steny. My word is my bond. My first act as a congressman is not going to be to go back on my word. That's the way I roll. Like it or lump it, I love you, but that's where I am. So it gets very intense. There's nothing like it, an internal race. I don't know. Malicious quotes, will the Trump endorsement matter? And this is just, it's up for debate. The question is, what Paul just laid out, that's the traditional way you do it. That's the way Steve Scalise is doing it. Jordan's kind of running an outside game. He doesn't have that internal set of relationships. He doesn't have that internal touch. That's just not the way he operates. He's not as prolific a fundraiser. He's not a glad hander. And so he's relying on the Fox News, Donald Trump outside influence game. And that might work. It remains to be seen. Personally, I don't know. Like, there's not much to choose between Paul. Gosh, what a great summary of this. Yeah. what Between the two of them. I guess I'm partial to them saying, hey, Patrick McHenry, why don't you hang on? Because he's someone who, like, Democrats feel they can work with. He's super conservative, don't get me wrong, but he's constructive. He'll move legislation. He's not a maniac. Like, he'd be fine. And now Kevin McCarthy wants to come back. So that'll be that'll be interesting. All right, let's wrap up on, we're getting nuttier and nuttier. Let's wrap up on, on total nuttiness. RFK Jr. has decided to run as an independent. I, we have an old-fashioned debate here, folks. Alicia, who do you think this is going to help more, Biden or Trump? Oh, I think it helps Biden more. And I know there are those that say, no, it'll, excuse me, I think it helps Trump more. It hurts Biden more. And I know there are those that say, no, because the Republicans like that he's anti-vax. Yeah, but that pocket of Republicans aren't going to vote for anybody but Donald Trump. So I, I think all it does is peel some particularly younger Democrats away from voting for Biden and gives Trump a much better advantage in a general election, which I personally find terrifying. Paul? I, I Maybe it's wishful thinking, but I like to buy into the argument that it hurts Trump because the guy is so nutty that some of the nutwings on the right will will go for him instead of Trump out of practicality. And especially if Trump is convicted between now and then, it gives the nutwings a home. I don't know. Maybe the ticket for the independence is going to be Kennedy Williamson, Marianne Williamson and Robert Kennedy, anti-vaxxers. Your two favorite people. Two favorite people out there rolling around the country. God knows what that'll do. In the end, I it's gonna be a it's gonna be a fun time at Ridgemont High, is all I'll say. I'm more persuaded currently by the argument that this is more dangerous for Biden, that it's more helpful for Trump. And by which I mean I think it introduces more risk for Biden. I'm not sure about Trump. And I think that's the problem. What you're seeing from Democratic groups is they are moving heavily. They're investing right now. There's actually a new $4 million investment to reach out to lightly affiliated Democratic voters to warn them not to throw away their vote on a candidate coming from no labels or from newly independent candidate Cornell West, who has decided not to run on the Green Party label, that's actually good news for Biden because it means that he won't necessarily have ballot access in all 50 states. It'll be more limited. He may struggle to get on the ballot in all 50 states. So anything that mutes his impact is probably a good thing for Biden. The thing that gets me about RFK, and I think the reason that Democrats are more nervous, is that even though polling so far 
which this far out is far from definitive. It doesn't really tell you a lot. Even though polling so far seems to indicate that RFK would be drawing support about equally from both sides. What we saw in 2020 was that there were a certain category of voters called double haters. They didn't like Trump and they didn't like Biden. And they broke disproportionately, overwhelmingly, in fact, for Joe Biden. About 80% of them went to Joe Biden. And what, when we look at the polling that's available to us right now that shows about an even race, again, not predictive at this stage, but it shows an approximation of where people are today, we, there are still a substantial number, uh, number of double haters. And so if history is any guide, and this is an argument, Alicia, that you've been making, Donald Trump has done nothing in the last three and a half years to gain an additional vote. And so if you look at that history, you say, chances are that right now, those double haters break toward Biden. And in those super close states that are going to decide the election, Wisconsin, Georgia, Arizona being the main three, the 40,000 votes that determined the 2020 election split among those three states, that break of the double haters is everything. That is probably determinative. So anything that introduces a random factor, another option, another place that those people who are not attracted to either candidate can go, that presents a risk to Biden because Biden needs those votes in those key states to overcome Trump. That's why I lean with the, this is more of a problem for Biden camp, but I could still be convinced the other way. All right. I hope I'm wrong. I hope we're both wrong. Hey, that would be a great new name for this show. Let's hope we're wrong. And (laughs) on that note, I think everything we've discussed here is such a bummer. I hope we're wrong about all of it. We will reassess when we reconvene next week for Paul Melissa and Matt Robeson. We'll see you next week.